Welcome to the Road to Kyoto podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Ian Tennant. The Road to Kyoto is a podcast series from the Global Initiative, which hears from some of the leading experts who study and track organised crime and related issues in the context of the upcoming 14th United Nations Crime Congress. The Congress usually takes place every five years, and the next one was due to be held in Kyoto, Japan in April 2020. Due to the COVID pandemic, it's now been postponed to the 7th to 12th of March 2021 and will largely take place online. This podcast series looks into some of the key issues that will be discussed and debated at the Congress, such as cybercrime, drugs policy, human rights, and the role of civil society in preventing and countering organised crime. The Congress, which usually meets every five years, is a key opportunity for the international community to make progress on countering organised crime and the damage it does around the world. Now, civil society deals with the effects of organised crime at the community level, and therefore it holds crucial insights into the nature of illicit markets and how best to respond to the damaging effects of crime. And the international community, including through discussions of the Crime Congress, has always benefited from the insights of civil society, as it has formulated policy at the local, national, regional and international levels. And the Congress itself as a consultative body and a forum for exchange between states and civil society, holds a key role for those community voices in debating, formulating and recommending strategies and responses for the UN and its member states. Now, in the absence of the usual networking between civil society and states that would take place at a normal crime congress, we've got together in advance of the congress a group of key experts from civil society, all of which are members of the global initiative network of experts. And with them, we'll discuss some of the key issues that they are seeing at the moment on organised crime, corruption, and what the Congress needs to take note of and respond to, to shape the international response to organised crime for the next five years. We're here online with an eminent group of experts from the Global Initiative network of experts and we're going to talk through some of these issues looking ahead to the UN Crime Congress which takes place 7th to 12th of March 2021. In alphabetical order I will introduce our experts today. First of all is Jay Albanese, professor at the Virginia Commonwealth University. Jay is a professor at the Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs and he also served as the chief of the International Centre at the National Institutes of Justice which is the research arm of the U.S. Department of Justice. He is an author and editor of 20 books on organized crime, ethics, corruption, transnational crime, and criminal justice. He is a past president and fellow of the Academy of Criminal Justice Sciences and co-founder of Criminologists Without Borders. Hello, Jay. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, Ian. Very good to be here. Next, we have uh, Lucia Damat, who is a professor of international relations at Universidad de Santiago de Chile, Born in Peru, her interests lie in the field of public security, criminal organizations, and criminal justice reform. Her expertise has been widely acknowledged in Latin America, and she has held key advisory positions in Chile, Argentina, Mexico, and Peru, and has served as a key advisor at the Organization of American States and other regional organizations. At the global level, she's been invited to be part of the UN Secretary General's Advisory Board on Disarmament Matters. Hello, Lucia. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you for inviting me. We also have John Gitongo, who is the CEO of Inuka Kenya Nisisi, 
which is a non-governmental organisation involved in governance issues, corruption specifically, with an emphasis on working with and for ordinary Kenyans, youth in particular. John is also a past chairman of the Africa Institute for Governing with Integrity, executive vice chair of Matara Youth Sports Association, chair and board member of the Africa Centre for Open Governance, and he's also been the commissioner of the Independent Commission on Aid Impact of the British government. And if that was not enough, he's also been the vice president of World Vision, senior associate member of St. Anthony's College, Oxford, permanent secretary in the office of the president in charge of governance and ethics at the Kenya government, board member of Transparency International, CEO of Transparency International Kenya. Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. And last but not least, we have Marika McAdam, International Legal and Policy Advisor. She's worked as an independent consultant on human trafficking, migrant smuggling and related issues for more than a decade. In that capacity, she has advised the UNODC, the International Organization for Migration, the Office on the High Commission for Human Rights and others. And she has conducted research globally on the challenges of implementing international law into domestic practice in regions as diverse as the Horn of Africa, Latin America, and the South Caucasus. Her recent publications address shelter practices in ASEAN, human trafficking and conflict, and mainstreaming human rights and gender equality into criminal justice responses to trafficking and smuggling. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Ian. Nice to talk to you. Okay, so we're going to uh, look back, first of all, to over five years ago. So the last Congress took place in 2015. The next one should have taken place in 2020. And obviously due to the coronavirus pandemic, it was delayed until until March 2021. You know, and in between every Congress, the world changes inevitably. But I think since 2015, there's been quite a significant amount of change in the world, technologically, politically, and culturally in many places. I'm going to ask our guests to explain briefly what they see as the key developments in the areas of organised crime that they focus on in the last six years. So first, I'm going to go to Jay. Jay, you've recently described the challenges of organised crime and corruption as being more serious and challenging than ever. Why do you say that? And and what has changed in the last six years? Thank you very much, Ian. Yes, uh, there's a number of important issues that I think, you know, we, we have forgotten uh, I was reminded there was a U.S. investigative commission on crime and criminal justice in general almost 50 years ago. And in its conclusions that I stumbled across recently, it said in part, uh, the perpetrators of organized crime may include corrupt business executives, members of the professions, public officials, or members of any other occupational group in addition to the conventional racketeer element. And that struck me as being something that we too often forget that is looking at organized crime as the outsiders, the predators victimizing the rest of us on the inside, you know, when in fact that's often the case. I mean, there's been some very good studies, you know, one of a, a multi-bank scandal, you know, much of it involved organized crime, a recurring theme of conspiracies between banking officials on as insiders and then accountants and lawyers and real estate developers and government officials as outsiders to make the conspiracy work. There's, you know, studies in Canada the same way where typically, you know, white collar mortgage frauds where insiders, outsiders, government officials and organized crime members involved. And then, of course, you know, we have the well-known Panama Papers, right, that revealed links and money trails between public officials, organized crime figures and banks. So it shows there's this corrupt thread among all those involved in the legitimate and illegitimate sectors. 
And this is something that I just see overlooked, especially when member states start talking about organized crime. So my takeaway is that, you know, organized crime and white collar crime and corruption all have the same objective, but governments too often portray organized crime as the predator, as does the public. You know, that it's the predator victimizing the public and private sector, when in many cases, it's just the opposite. That is, you know, public officials use organized crime as a tool in deceiving and defrauding the public. So the exploitation often begins with corruption rather than with organized crime. You know, it's easy to blame bad guys for problems rather than looking carefully at the good guys who are doing illicit things in their official capacities. So that's the main thrust of my concern, especially as I see events over the last five years. Okay. So, I mean, just as a follow-up question, Jay, do you see that this, you know, this type of intersection and incestuousness in business, politics, and crime is something that has grown in the last five years, or that just our awareness and understanding of it has grown? Well, I, I believe it's both, simply because what you see is many more instances around the globe of people in positions of authority, whether it's public officials or corporate officials, acting in the self-interest and directly against the public interest, which they're, they're supposed to be pursuing. So I think We've seen many more instances all over the globe about this, and many times, rather than thinking about uh, how organized crime is influencing government negatively, I often see too many cases of government, in fact, acting like an ongoing criminal enterprise in the self-interest of those in elected or appointed office. Thanks, Jay. Uh, we're going to head down to South America now and talk about some of those issues and how they manifested themselves there. So, Lucia, uh, when you're looking at the, the countries that you have interest and experience in, you know, how have things developed at this intersection between organized crime, corruption in politics in the last few years? Yeah, I think uh, Jay did a great introduction to what's going on in Latin America for at least 10 or 20 years, but in the last five years, we have seen a growing strong presence of organized crime organizations. Those organizations are not only linked to drug trafficking, but an increasing problem of human trafficking, illegal mining, uh, money laundering, among others. And those activities uh, require uh, institutional involvement. So this gray area that Jay described uh, the intersection between the state, the state officials, and those, you know, the bad guys is, is a gray area that is, I think, is being every day is growing. In some countries, it's concentrated at the national level. In other countries, uh, and, and those are Honduras, Guatemala, mostly Central America, you know, the Caribbean, those countries in which the drug trafficking process is really, you know, is really important. But in other countries that were considered safe in terms of homicides or in, in general, uh, safe places such as Costa Rica, Uruguay, or even Chile, you can also see the presence of organized crime, but at the local level or at the regional level. So my sense is that in general in Latin America, our trend is towards a more institutionalization of the presence of these type of organizations. And because we represent almost 34% of all homicides in the world, 
the main task of governments in the last five years have been to tackle homicides. So, you know, there is a, a lingering questions regarding how to better fight uh, corruption if you are actually focusing only on the violent part. So if you have organized crime that is not violent, then is normalized in some areas. So those type of activities, I think, are more generalized now in Latin America as a region than ever before. Are you saying that the, the kind of the prevalence of homicide, the focus on homicide takes away from the kind of broader strategic responses from organized crime in the region? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we have a really huge problem with homicides. And for that reason, countries such as Colombia or Brazil or El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, you know, countries that have a really awful uh, homicide rates in the world are tackling, you know, homicide rates. But now we have disappearances who are actually not being labeled as homicides, growing strong in some countries. But also the whole idea of fighting corruption it seems to be in a different in a different room in a different area of public policy so sometimes when you talk about organized crime in Latin America you start thinking about the interse- on the intersection between criminal organizations and corruption that gets disconnected <laughs> so we need to get these two agendas together because otherwise you kind of normalized some illegal activities that are not violent because we are actually fighting the violent part of criminal organizations. But in fact, in the last five years, I think the main trend goes into the participation of criminal organizations in regular governmental activities. In some cases, we have studied cases in which money lenders are actually running for offices in order to take control of regional and local governments. So it's a very scary trend, and I hope that in the Congress this trend will be discussed. Thank you. Thank you, Lucia. I'm going to head over to John now, who has a deep knowledge and understanding of the damage that organized crime and corruption has at the community level. So, John, could you explain how these issues, organized crime, corruption, etc., how these issues have evolved uh, in recent years from where you see them? Thank you, Ian. I think that I very much mirror the comments that have been made by both Lucia and Jay. And and I'll just make four points that that really sort of augment what, what they've already said in terms of some of the trends that we are seeing in my, my part of the world. The first one, which, which has been alluded to, is the, the professionalization and politicization of criminal networks. There's a blurring of, quote-unquote, organized crime and corruption networks. Increasingly, they are very much the same thing. And this has, has ironically, just in the last one year, with the research that we've been doing with colleagues here on the continent, the COVID-19 pandemic has proved to be both an intensifier and an accelerator of this. So you've seen uh, organized crime involved in the provision of PPEs, et cetera, and getting involved in that business. So, But what has become very evident as a result of this is, is that we've seen a dramatic increase in the role of, of the services sector in both organized crime and corruption, not only the banks and the lawyers, but also public relations and other sectors are very, very key to these trends. And there's a term that is increasingly used 
as organized crime and corruption networks become more globalized, more professional, more politicized, we see a trend that, you know, that Lucia alluded to that we, you know, we're calling here a state capture, where entire government departments, procurement processes become owned by these nefarious actors in a society. And what you know, ultimately that results in is you know, a loss of confidence and trust in, in politics and governance institutions as a result of this penetration by these illicit actors into the political realm. And um, you know, once they're in there, they're able to mitigate what they would consider hostile legislation, etc., and, and finally, an important trend has been the rise of the appearance of new aggressive actors in organized crime and corruption, uh, especially in the extractive sector in Africa. So Russia, China, Turkey, India, etc., and the use of centers like Dubai, Seychelles, etc. This has become a lot more prevalent. However, the ultimate destination for the resources that are illicitly acquired through corruption and organized crime, money laundering, human trafficking, and also environmental trafficking, whether it's rhino horns, uh, elephant tusks, you know, remains the ultimate destination <laughs> means uh, London via the overseas territories and the crown dependencies. I was quite interested in what you're saying there about the kind of the increased role of the, the private sector. Can you give a, a couple of examples of what you mean by that? Well, as you know, there's a major commission, the Zondo Commission in South Africa, which is investigating state capture in, in South Africa and a number of key private sector, service sector actors in auditing and accounting, in public relations, all of them originally from the West, you know, have actually folded as a result of this. And this is a trend that we're seeing also in a country like Kenya, which has a sophisticated services sector. So you'll have, say, traditional auditing firms with a sort of Chinese wall where they'll have a department that does the consultancy work for government and and then another department that does the regular auditing and accounting work and in 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 the consulting work a trend that i think is 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 you know is quite uh, unfortunate where entities of dubious provenance are able to get highly professional advice in putting together the transactions and the infrastructure for extracting public assets, uh, public resources from coffers. And that is something that we are seeing across the continent where, in particular, large debts have been acquired. Now, this, this is a trend that has accelerated dramatically over the last seven years in particular, where across sub-Saharan Africa, we're talking about almost $700 million of public debt. A lot of that is commercial debt. A lot of it is owed to Chinese state-owned banks. The contracts are, are not have not been seen. In many cases, the money is misappropriated, and the networks that are involved in that include the government and the corrupt network and the criminal networks. Now, this comes at a time when, as I said, you know, COVID has accelerated and intensified this. Um, so all of a sudden, if you look at what the IMF and the World Bank are saying, is a debt crisis in many of these countries, with many of them going into debt distress, uh, Angola, Mozambique, Zambia, just you know, four weeks ago, defaulted on its debt. If you look at the manner in which this debt was acquired and the infrastructure for acquiring it and then spending it, one sees the fingerprints of some of the, the corrupt and organized crime networks that we've been talking about, which is extremely unfortunate. Thank you, John. Now we're going to head over to America now, who focuses on the, on the human trafficking, human smuggling networks of 
organized crime. So looking back at the 2015 Crime Congress, which you know took place at the height of the, at least the European migration crisis of the time, there was little mention of migrant smuggling in the declaration from 2015, but lots of references to human trafficking. But fast forward to now, how has the situation changed with regard to these migration-related aspects of organized crime? Yeah, I was actually at the 13th Crime Congress in, in Doha, and I, it was interesting. I was there at some ancillary events speaking about issues like human rights at international borders and, and violence against migrants. And I think my uh, my feeling about where we're at now is, is sort of reflected in my feelings about those two issues. And I fear regression on both fronts, I have to say. Let's also not forget, Ian, that in 2015, we weren't just seeing the European migration crisis, but we also were having, you know, tragedy unfolding on the Andaman Sea with people, you know, both continents fleeing persecution, falling into the hands of organised smugglers and traffickers, including indeed state officials, resulting in lack of accountability on quite shocking levels and human rights abuses and violations at borders. So now I feel, you know, five slash six years on, history seems to be repeating itself, but what have our lessons been, you know, from that? And I think that knowing and acknowledging that we didn't do enough then hasn't really seemed to, to help us out all that much now. I mean, your, your question about the migration-related aspects of organised crime specifically, I guess, or more precisely refers to transnational trafficking when it's committed by organized crime groups and smuggler facilitated human movement. And I think globally, the evidence base makes it hard to deny that organized crime groups are filling the spaces that have been left or actually even created by state migration and labor policy, as, as previous speakers alluded to. But exploitation, I think, is is now so pervasive that it has become normalised and we're good at sort of fandangling how we talk about it, but we're not really good at addressing it. And state officials who are in positions to confront this aren't necessarily doing so, but are rather tacitly or even in some, some cases explicitly doing so. And that grey area that both Jay and Lucia spoke to, I think, is really expanding into, into transnational migration. So... In short, I guess, Ian, I think that both crime types seem to be raging on, but we haven't really seen a significant enough shift in in state labour, migration, criminal justice policy that puts a dent in either of them. But rather, I think what we've seen is a whole bunch of new crises, including ones that John and Lucia and Jay spoke to, that have fueled unsafe mobility and increased vulnerability to organised crime types. But the response tragically doesn't seem to have targeted the organised crime groups, but rather the very people who organised crime groups are targeting and profiting from. And how has COVID and the, you know, the, the movement restrictions uh, and so on that have been put in place, how has that affected the type of migration-related organised crime that you're looking at? Well, I guess in quite predictable ways. I mean, there's not a country in the world that hasn't in some way been affected by restrictions to border and migration movements. So at the same time, though, the demand both to move and the demand for migrant labour forces hasn't declined. So therefore, the market has sort of expanded for organised criminal actors in that. At the same time, of course, this is all compounded by the fact that, you know, economic ramifications mean that the the group of vulnerable people from which to fish has expanded. 
And so all of this has conflated into something of a problem, combining that, of course, with the fact that, you know, as, as happens in any kind of crisis, the states that are most affected by the crisis itself are also the ones that are extremely acutely affected by these issues of human trafficking and migrant smuggling. And yet their response capacity is also hampered by the crisis. So it's something of a, of a dark storm where all of these issues collide. Thank you very much, American. I think all all of our guests have painted quite a, a stark and serious picture with regard to the, the state of organised crime, the damage that it does. And it seems from the you know the various different sectors and crime types that we've discussed so far that things are more serious, more complicated, and more more damaging than they were six years ago. So the Congress will come together and it will discuss some of these issues. It's not a decision making body. And uh, we're expecting th- that its main outcome, the political declaration, having seen drafts of it so far, will largely be quite broad and will mainly reaffirm existing agreements, conventions and mechanisms that are already in place, of which there are multiple, as we know. So I'd like to ask the guests now whether they think reaffirming the international framework that we have to tackle organised crime and corruption will be enough. And first, I'm going to ask Lucia if you can explain you know how you see these international agreements in terms of the way they filter down to the regional and local level and whether they are indeed having the impact that they that they should be well i think it's best to have them but we really need to revisit the concept of organized crime and in that process we we should focus on on illegal markets and my sense, as many of my colleagues uh, have stated, that my sense is that post-COVID in places such as Latin America is going to be the perfect scenario for criminal organizations to flourish because we will be expecting a very deep economic crisis and many governments are desperate for funding. And I'm pretty sure that in some cases, criminal organizations will be not the last resort, but the first to get some funding for local or even national uh, policy. So my sense is that we really need to fight the bureaucratization of the whole international arena. Because as you mentioned, there are good definitions, there are good declarations but in most cases, they are not being implemented at the local or in the field in Latin America, at least. My sense is that also we need to strengthen the multidimensional uh, policies instead of just focusing on policing activities. Because one issue that is, you know, that is present throughout Latin America and I think throughout the global south in general is that the police is part of the problem nowadays. It's not really the solution because, you know, it's, it lacks legitimacy. It lacks confidence from citizens. It has high levels of corruption, high levels of abuse and violence against citizens. So if we continue focusing only on the law and order and specifically on policy and strategies, I think the international framework will become more and more irrelevant. So uh, I hope this Congress continues on, of course, making the declarations lie on, on, you know, vivid, but also opening the door for more 
creative ways to actually impact in the fight against organized crime, against corruption, and specifically against this gray area in the post-COVID times. Thank you, Lucia. America, you, you deal with a very specific set of protocols, I guess, on the on the human trafficking and migrant smuggling, along with uh, along with other related instruments. But now, you know, over fifteen years since the adoption of these protocols, how do you assess their impact, and is it enough just to reaffirm and to implement them? Implement, yes. Reaffirm, no. I'm a bit cynical, Ian, about um, reaffirming commitments. It um, seems to me a little bit like renewing wedding vows, and I, I can't help but think one should have meant them the first time. But, I mean, less cynically, I guess there's some value in re-emphasising commitments, even, even if only to stress that the obligations still matter even when the going gets tough, which it obviously is now because of COVID and everything else. And and also it's it's valuable because I think there's a tendency for the issues to sort of fall out of states' views and priorities when the issue shifts elsewhere. And that to me is a problem because, as I said, the states who are most affected are the ones whose capacity is the lowest. Meanwhile, the states who actually could continue to champion and sustain response tend to look away when they're not directly affected. And that, I think, is a missed opportunity for really proactive global gains. And it's short-sighted and, again, I think speaks to the political nature of these of these issues, notwithstanding these, these strong political commitments. But in terms of, you know, how we assess their impact, I mean, I guess we can we can point to the fact that there certainly has been progress. There's 179 parties to the trafficking protocol, 150 quite recently to the smuggling of migrants protocol. There's legislation in place all over the world. We've, we've got specialised prosecutors, judges, courts, at least on trafficking. A lot of cooperation agreements in place, um, you know, an emerging understanding of what we, what we consider to be best practices. I think we can say that these protocols in their 15 years have given us a language and a platform for engagement. But I think it's incumbent upon us to really interrogate how we assess impact. And here I think our metrics are completely off. You know, we're still trying to force, you know, neat and evocative numbers out of these stories that are all complex and and nuanced. And there still seems to be this, this emphasis in trying to quantify response rather than on measuring its quality or or lack thereof. And I think classic examples of this are the fact that we still count prosecutions, but we don't interrogate the fact that perhaps we're prosecuting the wrong people. Or we count the number of people who have been victims of organised crime and received assistance, but we don't then look to see whether they actually wanted that assistance and and ask whether it helped them or, or perhaps was to their detriment. So I think if we're serious about measuring impact, Ian, then we have to really also be assessing the damage done through the implementation as well as the gains to be made. And I think part of that means we have to incorporate into how we measure things, human rights and and labour, and consider how they are impacted by implementation of these protocols for better or for worse. Thank you. And I'd like to pick up on this point with Jay now, taking a step back at the broader picture. You know, we have the protocols that America is talking about come under the UN Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime. We have the UN Convention Against Corruption. We have a plethora of other regional instruments, national regulations covering organized crime. We have Financial Action Task Force looking at money laundering, et cetera, et cetera. But Jay, looking at all of this, do we even do we even know what works and what doesn't? Thank you, Ian. Yeah, as um, Marika and Lucia mentioned, there's pros and cons to what's going on. 
I think the world is a, is a better place for having the UN conventions on corruption and transnational organized crime, if for no other reason than it has helped to marshal global consensus around the importance of these issues. But if we've learned anything over the last 15 to 20 years, we've learned that no agreement is self-executing. You know, evaluation of these new methods and procedures and the content from the conventions is required if we're going to determine their effectiveness and cost-benefit. As you all know, the, the tools against organized crime and corruption in the conventions include, you know, electronic surveillance, witness protection, use of informants, undercover operations, mutual legal assistance, asset forfeiture, and, and others. There have been occasional reports about these methods, but no systematic assessment of their effectiveness, their costs, and their impacts. So when assertions are made about, you know, what measures best secure the rule of law and justice and public welfare, you know, we have to ask, you know, well, how do we know this? And, you know, that is really the essential question of evaluation. I mean, the public has the right to ask and the right to know, you know, what's the impact of our investments in these initiatives? But too often, you know, we fail to evaluate the effectiveness of our ideas, you know, to know if we're having any real impact on organized crime and corruption. So for me, it's, it's time to balance the urge to action which the Congress feels with the patients to evaluate. You know, so we can know whether our work is making the real difference that we intend. Implementation is not the same thing as evaluation of impacts. And I think that that distinction you know, requires much more attention. Thanks, Jay. And I'm going to go now to um, to John and kind of refer back to what, what several of you have been mentioning, which is the, the kind of gray area where the elite networks are operating and kind of greasing the wheels of organized crime, corruption, etc. So, you know, when you look at all the, the vast scale of conventions and legislation that we have against organized crime and corruption, do you think it's, you know, actually harder to be an organized criminal these days, John? I think when these conventions are passed, when I think of the United Nations Convention Against Corruption and others, when these are ratified and, and domesticated, especially in poor countries with low state capacity, you know, the elite is able to game them. That said, many measures do make things initially more complicated for organized crime. They're able to respond quite quickly. So, you know, there's a need for these instruments to be as dynamic as possible, to recognize that, in a sense, we're talking about, we talk about organized crime and corruption networks. These are some of the most creative, dynamic, fast-moving uh, networks in the world. You know, they're involved in, in dark activities and spend all the time thinking and planning how to get around the roadblocks that have been put in their, in their place. So we've seen some positive developments, especially around trying to manage money laundering. But organized crime networks, especially where the distinction between organized crime and part of the, the political class is very blurred, then their efficacy is, is limited. In, in my opinion. So greater dynamism is, is important. And as Professor said, you know, we need to move from just, you know, doing reviews of implementation to, to actually looking at what works and augmenting that and increasing international cooperation and making it a lot easier, especially for countries where the capacity, as I said, where the capacity is low. An investigator in, in Kenya trying to get some information out of Deutsche Bank, uh, say, with regard to transactions that are Require an investigation in a country like Kenya, 
just the process of, of the letters of mutual legal assistance and that kind of thing in some jurisdictions are extremely difficult. And many countries don't have the capacity to be able to translate into different languages to make the requests for information that they need to deal with crimes that are taking place in, the, in their countries. So it, it goes down to that simple level. And sometimes I, I'm a great believer in fixing the small, small things, company registries, land registries, making them public is sometimes easier than the really high-flying, major, hugely expensive investigations that cause a lot of excitement, but are actually quite difficult to, to see through. Uh, prosecution remains the most blunt instrument in the fight against corruption. It's slow, it's expensive, and for poor countries, it's very difficult. For democratic administrations, if you successfully prosecute one or maximum two cases of serious corruption uh, during the term of an administration, say five years, you're very lucky. Thanks, John. We're going to get on to part of the podcast now where we're going to ask all of you to provide a, a message to the Congress. And today we've heard lots of serious situations, you know, when we're talking about the grey areas between business, politics and crime, the elite networks that are operating. But we've also heard some reasons to be positive and reasons to be hopeful for the future. So if you were to say in a few sentences what your what your message is to those diplomats, experts and others that are going to be gathering virtually, mainly for the Crime Congress, what would that be, whether it's a, a call to action, a recommendation or just an ask for a recognition of an issue? So I'm going to go to John first. Two points to the gathering. Number one, we're seeing an unfortunate convergence which is going to impact even them and even in the most developed countries of uh, a convergence of autocracy, criminality and corruption that poses a global threat to the rule of law and, and the basic freedoms and democracy that we need to be able to live our lives in peace and prosperity, that these issues are now a threat to the rule of law and stability in ways that haven't been the case before. Number two, I think there's some there's a need for a more robust approach with regard to measures around the beneficial ownership, you know, just transparency around that, dealing with this whole issue of anonymous shell companies and their use, and especially in public procurement, political party finance, getting more robust and energetic around that, and just strengthening cooperation between countries in the fight against corruption and kleptocracy, I think is, is critical at this moment. As I said, it poses a risk to the system by which we as, as nations are able to live together peacefully in, a, in an environment that is free and not dominated by criminality. Thank you. Lucia? Yeah. Well, my sense is that we have in front of us a window of opportunity to be creative and bold in terms of the global and the regional responses against organized crime and also corruption and the gray area we, we, we discuss here. So my sense is that we need to focus on four pillars of the international, global, and regional responses. One of them is increasing state capacity. And of course, state capacity is also linked to what uh, our colleagues have discussed, increasing regulation of political financing, for instance, and political parties' regulations. But the second is more accountability, and then more transparency, and lastly, increasing levels of co-production of policies. So we need to get into a debate with a civil society organizations and the community at large, because the communities, especially those in the global south, but 
increasingly also in the north are those hidden hard by violence, by, you know, increasing levels of the cost of the participation of criminal organizations in corruption at, at the local level in extortion and other practices. So my sense is that this Congress has a huge challenge in order not only to discuss what's going on in the last five years, but also the process that post-COVID will produce everywhere. Thank you. America, what's your message? Perhaps a slightly indelicate one, Ian. I think we need to be talking about urgent issues with a sense of urgency. So my humble request to Congress, if they're listening, is please don't squander precious time together giving motherhood statements and listing all the things you've done. Tell us what you need to do and the challenges you face in closing the gap between all the commitments you're making and your actions. And perhaps that way we can all you know, figure out effective ways that we might be able to help. Thank you very much. And lastly, Jay, what is your message to the Congress? Well, I agree with everything that's been said, but let me focus on two specific things. That is prevention and uh, individual accountability. You know, when you look at the articles of the Conventions on Corruption and Transnational Organized Crime, I think you can make a compelling argument that the provisions involving prevention have been the least successfully implemented without question. And this is because, of course, governments, member states are primarily reactive to problems, right? Governments generally do not perform well in anticipating and preventing problems. They put up traffic signals after people are killed at an intersection. There's very rarely an assessment of the comparative dangerousness. You wait for people to die and then you say, oh, I guess we have to do something. So I believe a much stronger focus on prevention is needed and civil society has the best capabilities to carry out prevention efforts. Arguably, the ability of civil society to do crime prevention is just simply more obvious than for government. Second, individual accountability. You know, the, the old saying goes, if you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And the Congress and the conventions always look to make structural reforms. That is, you approach a problem the way many parliaments do, you know, the solutions to organized crime and corruption, they see as we need structural changes. We need new laws, new regulations, new enforcement, new oversight. All those things are clearly important. But we don't give attention to the fact that given all the new laws, regulations, enforcement and oversight, corruption is still very common. Organized crime is still very common. So the question is, well, where do these people come from who, despite hope some reduced opportunities, are still making corrupt choices, right? Where do these people with who are you know, selfish, self-serving, and especially in the case of public officials who are not acting in the public interest? So to me, there needs to be a, a renewed focus on individual accountability. So prevention and individual accountability are two big issues I believe they should start thinking more seriously about. Thank you very much, Jay. And thank you, Marika, Lucia, and John, thanks to all of you for, for taking part today on behalf of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. And I think in many ways, you have all, whilst looking at different aspects of organised crime in, in different regions, you've demonstrated some common themes of which the, the Congress should be aware. And the other, I think the other thing that you've done as well is demonstrated that the strength of civil society is the, is the diversity that we have, that um, all of you have also expressed as well 
that civil society's role in preventing and tackling organized crime in terms of providing insights, data from the ground and providing innovative responses has been pivotal and will be pivotal in the future. And we hope that those attending the Crime Congress are listening to what you've said and that they will respond. And so thank you once again. To keep track of global initiative engagement and events at the Crime Congress, please visit our website globalinitiative.net and follow our social media channels. Following the Congress, we will have an additional podcast looking back at what happened. Thanks for listening to the Road to Kyoto podcast. I'm Ian Tennant.